welcome to the podcast New Work and Sustainability. My name is Nicole Helmerich. I accompany leaders and teams to connect and co-create meaningfully and to grow, bringing themselves and their business forward. I help organizations to transform in a sustainable and people-centered way. Let us think organization as a living system. In this podcast, we'll explore cutting-edge new work practices and sustainability practices for your organization, for your team, and for you as a leader. In this episode today, we talk about a new narrative for a grand transition with Guido Palazzo. Hello, Guido. Hello. Let me introduce my guest today. Guido Palazzo is professor of business ethics at HEC Lausanne, Switzerland. He has studied business and philosophy and did his PhD in political philosophy at the University of Marburg in Germany. In his current research, he examines how societies and organizations construct imaginaries that guide behavior. What if we understand the multiple crises the world is facing as a storytelling crisis? What if the ecological transition depends not only on new technologies, but also, and maybe in particular too, on our ability to craft a new narrative? Before we get started, let us first check in. Why? This helps us to get present and get focused on what we would like to do today. Try it out with your team. Besides getting present, it is a wonderful way to get to know each other better. We do this check-in with three hashtags today. My hashtags today are hashtag new work and sustainability expert, hashtag regeneration, and hashtag the group Las Migas with the song La Cantaora. Welcome, Guido, to the show. What are your three hashtags today? Hello, Nicole. My three hashtags are hashtag storytelling, hashtag permacrisis, hashtag respair. Thank you, Guido, for those three hashtags. And let us now jump into uh, our topic of today, a new narrative for a grand transition. And maybe let's start with what do those hashtags have to do with that? If, if we look at the current ecological crisis, I think there there has been a big mistake being made the last 20 years, at least. It's the mistake to believe that if we would only know what's at stake, we would change behavior. Um, so scientists pile up studies over studies and are getting increasingly frustrated that nobody acts based on the evidence they provide. The reason for that is very simple. We are hardwired for storytelling, my first hashtag. We are not processing scientific facts and, and acting on those facts. We act upon stories. Yes. So if we don't package facts into stories, we don't touch people's hearts. And if we don't touch people's hearts, they don't move. So that's why storytelling, in my view, is so important. And what does permacrisis mean for you? Permacrisis means that if we look at the context in which we are going to narrate ourselves in the future, it's a, it's a world that is very different from the one that we have experienced in the last 40, 50, 60 years in which 
a narrative that we are now losing, we will, I guess, talk about this, um, has emerged and, and uh, being reinforced. This new world is one that is out of equilibrium, and not just for a moment, but permanently out of equilibrium because we are facing multiple crises that are not going away. So instead of having a system that goes through a crisis and then bounces back to normality, um, we will have a world that is permanently into one or the other crisis. That's why the term perma-crisis, I guess, is a good description of the world we are living in right now and in the future. And let's jump into your last hashtag, the respair. Respair is an old English word that has been long forgotten and out of use. Um, it is the opposite, actually, of despair. So to be desperate, to lose hope. Um, respair means to regain hope after a long period of desperation. So it's a beautiful word. And I, I choose that word because um, I'm a bit skeptical about all these doom predictions, these doom scenarios about the future. I think we need hope. And without hope, we will not act. So the stories we will have to tell each other about the future that should or that are supposed to touch us and change our behavior must be stories about hope so that we can respire finally. That is a wonderful entry into reflecting about what is a narrative for you? What, what does storytelling mean for you? And um, yeah, how would you understand that? I always show my, my students when I teach about narratives and stories, I show them a little statue that was found in southern Germany um, more than 100 years ago. And it's a statue of a person, a human being with the head of a cave lion. And this figure is called Lion Man. Probably a man, but maybe also a woman, but it's called Lion Man. And it's about 30 centimeters high. It was carved out of ivory 30,000 years ago when in that region there was Ice Age. So people were uh, spending most of their time, their energy in finding food. And yet, as, as, as uh, archaeologists found out, it probably took 250 hours for an expert to produce lion man. That means in a time when food was scarce, people were um, liberating at least one person from finding food to produce art. This figure, Lion Man, was probably telling a story, one that we have no access to, but that was so important for these people um, that it was on equal level with food. It's one of the big mistakes uh, that we do when we look at the Maslow pyramid, to believe that first comes food, then comes safety, and at the, at the final end, there is something like narratives and self-actualization and yeah, beliefs. Um, actually, in reality, it's always in parallel. We are hardwired for storytelling, and stories are as important as food. So any society is guided by some dominant narratives. Narratives I would understand as aggregations of stories. Um, aggregations of stories that transport certain values and beliefs that determine what people in a particular historical moment, in a particular society, believe about the world. And that drives their behavior. That was a story about a, a person with a human body and a lion head at that time. It's something very different for us. But in any case, it's always 
a story that drives what we do. And stories can be very powerful. And when stories turn into a narrative, it can shape societies, it can shape the economy, the way we think about the economy, the way we think about business, the way we think about doing business. And um, they can be very powerful that they can even be dominant for decades, right? The way we do business. And if we think about, so we do this recording here in Lausanne and uh, Veve is like half an hour away from here. And above Veve, there is um, a place where the Mont Pelerin Society was founded, which is, if people are interested in neoliberalism, um, a very important booster, let's say, uh, for this narrative that has been dominant um, in the economy for so long. So let us talk about this, this narrative a bit of neoliberalism and why you argue that it comes to an end. Mm -hmm. One of the, the founding fathers of neoliberalism, Milton Friedman, once said that a new time starts when people pick up the storytelling material that is already lying around and when the existing stories don't work anymore. So he was very clever in picking up the material that was lying around, he and Hayek and all the others, lying around at the end of the Second World War, um, in which the narratives that had dominated for a while were shattered. Um, there was fascism, there was communism, uh, there was the absolute value given to the community, the people uh, over the individual, a moment in which people probably wanted something very different, and they picked this up and shaped this new story, which is about the individual decision-maker independent from society. And if he says this stuff lies around, it means that we never invent our narratives from from a vacuum. It's always material that is that is partly hundreds of years old that gets reinterpreted, reused, uh, put together again, assembled, and then shapes a new shapes a new time. So neoliberalism is about individual freedom as the absolute value. It's about the assumption that. Um, the highest value is the freedom of the individual to maximize their own utility. Um, it's about markets that are magic, as Ronald Reagan said, that combine the egoism of individuals and transform them into welfare for everyone, the invisible hand of the market, as Adam Smith said, which means that then, if that is the case, we should not touch these markets with too much regulation. We should let them do their work, their magic, and then we will all be better off. It's about this belief in, in eternal growth that comes with the exploitation of colonies, of course. It's about um, the idea that governments are bad, that private actors are good, that private property is the highest the highest. Um, Important, is of highest importance, so we shouldn't touch property rights. Today, um, we talk about the shareholder value as the main form of property rights. <clears throat> it's about the idea to, to globalize this in 1989 when the war came down. Uh, and, and, and Francis Fukuyama writes, this is the end of history because our narrative has won. 
And it's about the idea that happiness is strongly connected to consumption, to markets again. The more we consume, the happier we are. And you can take any of the elements of that narrative um, and deconstruct it. It doesn't have much more evidence as the story of Lion Man. It's just another belief system. The tricky thing is that in any narrative, some, some truth is mixed up with some beliefs. Um, so, yes, markets do good things, but markets also do the opposite. It depends on the perspective you take. Human beings are egoistic utility maximizers, but not only. We are also a collaborating species, and maybe we are in particular collaborating. So you can take any of these elements and challenge it. In a moment of history where everything is stable, everything goes in a good direction, people don't challenge the narrative. The narrative is taken as an objective description of reality. Only when the facts are no longer um, connecting with what people perceive as their own reality, the facts from the narrative, then they start to doubt. And the more they doubt, um, the less power this narrative has. It gets disenchanted. Max Weber's idea that, that uh, the Enlightenment disenchanted religion can be taken one step further. Any narrative at any time uh, in our history has been disenchanted by some new narrative. Think about uh, St. Paul arriving in Rome. Um, he disenchants a narrative that is at that time, and he arrives at the time of, of uh, the Emperor Nero. He starts to, 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 to blow cracks into the mythology of the Roman Empire. So it, he opens the first, the first doors for what then becomes the next powerful narrative of, of, of the Christian belief. So you have in any historical moment phases of stability of narratives and phases of erosion replacement by some else, something else, disenchantment. And disenchantment also means some very active destruction of the old system. You must show that these gods you have prayed to before are not really gods, but they are powerless, and that your new gods are much better. This is happening right now as well. So we start to doubt that neoliberalism <clears throat> is working. We start to doubt that consumption makes us happy because the facts are not supporting this claim. We doubt in free markets, unregulated markets. We doubt in human egoism. Um, so in any of these elements, we, we doubt that this can become the system of the world. Any of these elements is challenged. And that leads to an erosion of the entire narrative slowly over time. So the idea is here, um, it is, there's like a lifetime of a narrative, and this narrative of neoliberalism is in decline, and we can see that it is in decline because the core elements, the building blocks, say the pillars of this narrative is in erosion, is doubted, um, is challenged. Yes. And how does then, if we think about that, how does then, or how could then, a new narrative look like? And what are Moore's thoughts on why we need this new narrative? I would recommend, as Milton Friedman already recommended 
at his time, we should look around and look at the material that is lying around. Um, so what, who are the actors who challenge this system and what are their alternative ideas about the world? Um, a narrative is never challenged from its power center. It's challenged from the margins. St. Paul's story of Jesus is not speaking to emperors at the beginning. It is speaking to slaves, women, poor people in the Roman Empire. So those who felt themselves at the margin of the, of the existing narrative. In our world now, it's the um, climate activists. It's, it's the Fridays for Future kids. It's scientists who, from the margin, challenge the power system by challenging its assumptions about the world and by offering alternative ideas about how we could interpret the world. Um, and if you look into the book market right now, what you see is an explosion of books on collaboration, for instance. Um, books and it's based on research that challenge the idea that humans are just rational actors making decisions that maximizes their own utility. We are probably rather a collaborative species than an egoistic species. Otherwise, we would ne never have developed the ability to build rockets, fly to the moon. Um, we collaborate. But collaboration is not at the core of our narrative. Social Darwinism is at the core, which means um, it's, it's about the struggle for survival. Think about Thomas Hobbes and the Leviathan, which is at the, at the core of free markets, is this idea that people fight. Um, so you need a powerful ruler, Leviathan, to keep us under control. But that ruler should not limit too much of our freedom, just the minimum. But if there would be no regulation, we would kill each other because we are basically bad people. Now, again, this is challenged in psychology today, in anthropology. It's challenged in, in, um, in, in sociology, in biology, where studies over studies are appearing that describe a very different idea of human beings. That is based on collaboration. And if you look now at places like the one I work, a business school, and you wonder, are there courses offered on collaboration? You'll find none. But you find tons of courses on competition, fighting. Imagine a world in which we would teach people collaboration instead of competition. It would look very different. And, and once again, it's not about saying, well, this is truer or more real than the other narrative. It's just a choice that we make when we follow narratives. Of course, narratives need a link to reality. If, if I would tell you I hear voices and they tell me we should jump out of the window altogether, that narrative will not survive for long. It will be wiped out by evolution. So there needs to be some functional value in the narrative. But the value of collaboration is probably at least as good as the one of fighting. So that is one element of this narrative that I see emerging, collaboration. With the metaphor that we see also um, being connected to it increasingly, that is the metaphor of the forest. And maybe there's yes. nothing that shows us the difference between the old and the new thinking. In the old world, a forest is something that is just a, yeah, an assembly of isolated trees that are resources that we can cut and use. While we understand now a forest is a living system in which 
the trees are connected, even interspecies connected through fungi. Um, they help each other. They call they, they call for help. They warn each other. They nourish each other. So there is a system that when you touch an element of that system, you might endanger the whole. So this thinking in connectedness um, is the second element that I would see emerging, lying around as material that we can pick up. We should not, as the Enlightenment has taught us, imagine the world as something we understand better by drilling into ever more details. It's by looking at the connections, the in-betweenness. Those are two very thought-provoking elements of a, of a new narrative. And when you think, what would this mean then for, for organizations and, and for business leaders when you start to lay out this new narrative? What kind of transition uh, would need to happen? If, if you would ask a manager, who are your stakeholders? And if we assume that manager knows what stakeholders are and values stakeholders, they would probably list actors such as customers, uh, government, NGOs, competitors, and so on. What I would ask them then is, have you ever thought about a dolphin as your stakeholder, a forest, a river? And that would probably create a bit of surprise. But that's where it's going. It's going into and that's, that might be the third element of this new narrative lying around. It's, it's, it's about radical, radically changing our, challenging our agency concept. For us, we are agents, human beings, and the rest is just material. Uh, and we use it as resources, we exploit it. To, to give rights, actor rights, agency to nature, is a first step of acknowledging that this is just not about us, to move the human out of the center of human thinking. And there are companies now starting to, to consider a river or dolphin or forest as their stakeholder and to give that natural agent a space in their decision-making uh, uh, meetings in, in, in boards, um, in stakeholder dialogues. And that is where we have to go. There's a wonderful book written by Bruno Latour, Gaia, <clears throat> in which yeah. he spells that out and shows that our agency concept is flawed. That we need to include natural actors into our agency concept for one simple reason. Um, so far, we have thought that we are the actors. We play our little theater play and nature is in the background. But now nature starts to act and we watch, powerless. So we are the observer and nature is the actor. So agency has to be reconsidered. Um, In-betweenness has to be taken into consideration and collaboration must become a core value that we teach in our schools and in our universities. So these three elements I would raise as, as, as core for the new narrative. And for companies, again, that means to change how they interact with the world and to give rights to something that becomes a someone. How do you include a, a dolphin in your stakeholder uh, meeting? Well, via a representative who understands what a, a dolphin needs. That is never perfect, of course, because we don't know what they think and how they think. But we can 
organized representations of actors um, that are not human and consider their needs and their rights and their connectedness to us when we make our decisions in companies. You just uh, mentioned Latour and how he, he spelled out agency and there is a is another book that um, is written by Giles Hutchins and Laura Storm on regenerative leadership, where they look at this um, from uh, a practical business perspective and they lay out like a DNA model of regeneration. So their idea is to think as organizations to not wanting to reduce the harm that they do to the planet and to the society, but um, really think about how to create value in a, in a purposeful way, way to create value for the organization, for the business, but also for the planet and society. And what I find interesting there is there are many connecting points to what you lay out to collaboration connection and agency. So they think about how can we reconnect with ourselves inwardly and how can we reconnect with other people and the surroundings. So specific methods, tools of, of, of reconnecting of, of sorts inner and, and outwardly and also Collaboration is a, is a big piece in that in order to see how can we change things in groups and how can communication, innovation, moving forward towards something new, which is for them the regeneration in another way. And uh, they're also putting in a toolkit there and, and make it very practical. And There's, a, there's a, um, another link that comes to my mind when you talk about collaboration and now I go like one, like say, dimension deeper. Um, we talked about the why and now about the how I think is also very important to talk about because you say collaboration is not taught at business schools, right? Um, if you look at new work and if you look at Agile work, if you look at elements of liberating structures and others that help those self-organized teams to move along, those are wonderful tools that are more and more implemented also in environmental movements, ways of how to innovate, how to design with nature. So I think it could be interesting to, to see how we can connect those, those different things lying around, as you said, um, to, to connect to this, uh, to this narrative. Um, so what comes up to you when you think about first steps that could, how could they look like first steps of a transition to, to something else, to something new? What could this transition be and how, how could we make this practical for organizations and for business? What what you just mentioned is super important. It's this new ways of organizing a company, of making decisions, of making decisions more democratic. <clears throat> But I think we have to go one step further. Uh, we cannot think in, in corporations anymore, in companies. We have to think in, in networks of, of actors. Companies have 
since, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, we have started to organize the world in global value chains. Companies connected to suppliers who are connected to suppliers and so on. It's an endless chain or even network. And the way Western companies have managed these relationships is by squeezing suppliers, by making pressure on them to reduce costs because they want to be more efficient themselves. And the suppliers in that chain, the direct suppliers of a Western brand, then will squeeze their own suppliers. Um, and in the end, what we get in these chains is um, a very unfair distribution of value that goes mainly to the po most powerful actors and a, ha a highly fragile relationship where people very often operate with their little organizations just covering their costs or making a little bit of profit because everything else is squeezed out. If you want to make a supply chain regenerative by giving back more to the world than you take, this important mindset shift that you mentioned, you cannot do this by squeezing. No. You have to collaborate. You have to create a collaboration across the chain where you depend on the goodwill of all these other actors to contribute to your scope 3 CO2 reduction, for instance. Take coffee or cocoa. Most of the CO2 that is emitted in, in, in coffee is at the very beginning of the chain with cocoa. So you depend on the farmers and their willingness to engage with you in reducing CO2. And that requires something else than the threat style management that we have seen in the past. So I would, I would expect a revolution in supply chain management being necessary um, towards a fairer distribution of value towards more cooperation and towards, and that's the price we pay, a lower level of efficiency. Because that's that's the mindset shift as well. We, we must move, because it's a perma-crisis, from understanding business operations as, as something that is aiming for the highest level of efficiency to one that must balance efficiency with resilience. Because in a stable world, you can squeeze and squeeze and squeeze, and it's all good for you because if the supplier then collapses, you just take another one. But in a in a world that is moving from one crisis to the other, you might depend on these actors in a way um, that is not predictable. You depend on their collaboration. You cannot just have one supplier for your entire production that is sitting in one place in the world because when that supplier doesn't work well anymore, you, your whole chain is stuck. Think about Volkswagen having a producer of a cable sitting in Ukraine. And in the very moment where the war starts, they are blocking their entire production of cars because that cable is missing. Why do they not have two or three of these suppliers producing the cable? Because of the efficiency. So we have to move out of the efficiency into a resilience model of managing um, the, the, the economic relationships. And we have to move out of squeezing and power abuse towards collaboration um, and, and understanding of mutual dependency. Also, what comes to my mind to add on to your thoughts is so far we think about an organization as a, as a machine and the relationship in the supply chain, that of a possibility of comply and control. And there is the idea of 
if I top down implement certain things and I ask my business partners to do that, then this is to happen because of either the pressure I exercise, the incentive I give, um, or the price I pay or what have you. So it's, it's a leverage uh, system. It's a system of, of control. But if we actually look at a supply chain as a network, and if we think about the way organizations are linked together as a network, as a system, then we move from a linear perspective into a non-linear perspective. So we think about system theory, complexity theory that we want to use and that we want to also teach and make known among business leaders that it's, it's not about A plus B gives a solution C, that we're out of that. There's too much uncertainty going on. Climate change and other crises are around that do not allow for this linear thinking because it's just not working. It's just not helping us to solve problems. So if we think this on this meta view of how supply chains work, if we then take this down, like all the way down to the dimensions of how we come up with solutions. Right now we come up with solutions when we get together in meetings where there is one speaker in front and tells all of the other people how things have to go. So it is not using the knowledge of the crowd. So, and I zoomed in and in all the way right now from the supply chains to a meeting. Um, but that's the very same thing. It's, it's getting out of that thinking that linear solutions do work. And as soon as there is not that linearity anymore, we need to think how we can actually make change by using all of the actors that are relevant, all of the stakeholders that are relevant, all of the employees that are relevant in order to invite their knowledge and their complete knowledge to make this transition happening. This is uh, what came up from, from me when you just said that. And I've, I've been running around and, <laughs> and working and uh, also in the past doing research in various supply chains in the textile, in the tea, in the, in the cocoa sector and others. And you can see all over and all over again that the way it is built, it's not resilient. It's not sustainable. It's not based on long-term relationships. And there is not that idea of wanting to build growth for everybody. And uh, so that was the things that just uh, popped up for, for me here, um, trying to bridge like <laughs> the supply chain with all the way going into, into um, meetings. Because I think on each and every level, we need to kind of see where collaboration and connection and agency comes in. And um, this doesn't only work for, say, the system or the economic system, the way we, we think organizations, but it really much starts also in conversations that we have in meetings that we have. What else comes to your mind? Maybe the reaction to what you just said. Um, we have a 20 years experience in the apparel industry with the failure of control, where Western brands assume that if they just send auditors to factories of suppliers um, and, and give them a code of conduct, then they will implement that. But how can they implement that if they are squeezed at the same time and don't have the money to implement it? Um, they figure out that cheating the auditor is much cheaper than implementing 
what what the CSR manager of the company is asking for. So you have an explosion of cheating over, uh, over the last 20 years in, in the apparel industry. When the auditor comes, in 80% of the cases, some studies, um, they get shown a kind of facade. Potemkin village, not a reality. So control is not the answer to human rights issues, and it's certainly not the answer to other sustainability issues in the future. However, paradoxically, we see that now with the, with AI and these new control mechanisms that are possible, some companies believe that it, that they can now better control to do the same that didn't work in the past, assuming it would work better because it's now digital. If you think about Amazon as an example and the way they control the workers and even the managers in real time, knowing exactly what you do, when you do it, how you do it, uh, how good or not good you perform. Um, I always call this Taylorism 3.0 because it's the assumption, again, that we are machines, that you push us and incentivize us maybe, um, and then we work better and more. But that's not what we are. We want meaning. We want collaboration. We want to connect well to others. We do not want to be controlled all the time. If someone tries to control us, we try to go around the control, and that will never change. Yeah, definitely. And we also want to connect not only to humans, but also to nature. And more and more people are are being aware um, of this. And uh, so if folks are interested, uh, we have done an episode on regeneration and sustainable leadership. It's episode three. And there's also an episode on Social Impact DAOs for Regeneration, which is quite an, an interesting movement of how to change things in, in business and how organizations are th thought out in networks. And there's also an episode on, on circular economy. So if you want to go back and deepen into those topics, please go ahead and, and do so. What is your takeaway from this conversation? I guess my takeaway you guiding me from the narrative to the uh, questions companies are asking or problems they have. The takeaway is that we should always be able to make that link between the seemingly cloudy and abstract stories, narratives that guide us, and the concrete behavior in organizations. Um, because in the end, what we do is always guided by these narratives. We are just not always conscious about it. So there's nothing if I might paraphrase Hegel, there's nothing as practical as a good narrative. Thank you for this wonderful quote also at the end. My takeaway is that it is so important to create those positive narratives and to create a narrative where I know where I'm going to and also where I feel empowered that I can go to instead of a narrative that is kind of stopping me or threatening me or that I'm afraid of. Um, so I think this opening up of, of a positive narrative uh, for a transition to address the climate crisis is, is so important to, to develop and um, to think through. So thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and um, sharing this insight. If people like to know more about you and your work, where can they find you? They can find me on LinkedIn, where I lead a lot of discussions around these topics we just discussed here. We will make sure to put this also into the show notes. 
So thank you again, Guido, for joining the show today. My pleasure. If you like what you have heard, tell me about it and let's continue the conversation on LinkedIn. Come back next time and recommend the show to your colleagues and friends.